Welcome to The Brilliant. This is episode 21. live in a world where over half of us are surrounded at most times by pavement, billboards, and strangers. A world that, when it isn't overtly threatening, is toxic and boring much of the time. It is a world where imagination is valued to the degree that it can be commodified, and where our primary social ritual is the mutation of time into dollars, dollars into products, and products into garbage. Against such a dreary background lies the image that a tiny number of us hold, either as a beautiful dream or a painful delusion, the brilliant world of anarchy. So welcome to The Brilliant. We are continuing in short order from the previous episode, which means that I woke up and was sat down in front of a microphone and I'm going to do my best here. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm <clears throat> surprised you didn't throw in any... Uh... Ten dollar words like torpor. Yeah, I, I'm responding to critique. Yeah, see, it's you know, praxis it is met with critique, and then critique informs the praxis. We we lower the, our uh, use of torpor, and um, I think I had quotidian. In one <laughs> and so we wanted to continue the discussion from yesterday about uh, why why are we so weak as anarchists? As in, uh, not necessarily on the individual level, but why is anarchism not especially popular? Why is anarchism not especially dangerous? Why is it that um, the FBI in their own you know, dispatches that you can find on their website, why do they say that anarchists have not really been a threat since the Battle of Seattle in 1999? And they, their description is that anarchists, quote, occasionally demonstrate limited ability to mobilize themselves, end quote. Well, you know, it's funny to, to start the conversation out in terms of uh, measuring ourselves against the state. Sure. Um, I I think that the other part of that question, uh, why are anarchists so weak, is why is it any time an anarchist is criticized that that somehow is a indictment of all anarchists or an indictment of a position? Um in other words, just because you are stupid does not mean that we are stupid. Mm -hmm. And and I think that um, uh, part of this is is a, a sort of return to Nietzsche and and a conversation about resentment, which I guess is also a conversation about why some of us would like anarchists to make a very clear break with the left. And so this conversation about why why we are so weak is oftentimes framed as a question of, you know, if anarchists themselves are not capable of changing the world, which we are not necessarily capable of doing such, 
then we should connect ourselves with other people and in the aggregate we will change the world and the process of doing that in general looks like becoming or reconciling yourself with the left um, and sometimes it's the old school traditional left and sometimes it's a it's a new left that no longer mobilizes itself in terms of acronyms and organizations <laughs> and um, and so to me that's part of this question is why are we are so why are we so weak that we do not um, at least stand up on our own merit, stand up on our own principles, stand up with our own people. Why is it that instead we, our eyes wander and whenever we stand up, we only stand up sort of with the cover of other people being the ones that we're standing up for with, etc. Yeah, so talking about two very different kinds of weakness then, one being, are we not capable of quote-unquote changing the world as in radically breaking with the existent, living in a world in short order that looks completely different from this one and then why are we not willing to proudly say I am an anarchist and that means something very different than redistributing wealth it means something very different from federating the world into a set of workers councils it looks like something entirely different that maybe sometimes is difficult for me to even talk to people about because I feel like the conversation is not going to go anywhere (laughs) and that in itself even being a kind of weakness on the individual level why are so many anarchists, in my experience, reluctant almost to talk about their ideas to someone that they don't think will have sensitive ears. I mean, um, oftentimes I see anarchists trying to sort of couch their words or be reluctant to even talk about themselves as that kind of person because at at this point with, uh, you know, a hundred years after um, the, uh, the sort of loud and proud anarchists of the early 1900s, it's not seen as a legitimate political position and often uh, looks like an embarrassing conversation. And in that context, we're going to talk a little bit about, and this is a piece of text that we revert to all the time, which is uh, the DuPonts. And the nice thing about the DuPonts and, you know, the reason that, that we publish them and the reason that we still talk about them is because they make, they don't make cases sort of like as anarchists. They, they make the case... Um, uh, more generally and somewhat poetically. And so we're going to talk a little bit about this piece of writing and use it to uh, contextualize a broader discussion about why why we are so weak. Um, sure. So this is just an excerpt from um, Why Is It That Others Feel No Interest For Us, which is a section in a longer book called Species Being, or Species Being and Other Stories, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. So... Why is it that others feel no interest for us? That is us. We are on the verge of recognizing ourselves. We inscribe the area and the activity. It is us, us, us. We are the ones who spend our energies in the struggle against capital. We define capitalism. We define the struggle against capitalism. We define ourselves as the agent of that struggle. And we sketch out the goals that we are fighting for. But doesn't this involve only a very small number of people? This only involves a very small number of people. And capitalism is a system of social relations that conditions the existence of billions of human beings. So, if this system of social relations is so harmful, why aren't there many, many more people involved in the struggle against it? We don't want to talk about that. That does not belong to our model of effort and result of effort. Typically, we, who are in struggle, say it is a problem of consciousness, If people understood how they were exploited, they would join with us. You mean, 
we mean. For the moment, the struggle must continue without all these billions who do not grasp their situation. It must be continued by us who do understand, and it must be continued by us until the others get it at last. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a brutal... It's a brutal statement, but but it, it is a conversation about framing and about um, the things that seem so obvious to us, i.e. radicals, uh, are perhaps not so obvious to the rest of the stupids who are, you know, she- sheepling about. Um, and, and you know, just the incredible arrogance that there is in the, in the particular framing that, that we do do, you know, where we, on the one hand, look to the... Um, uh, to the sheeple for, for, for realness, um, never accepting that the, that the people around us, the people in our life, the quote unquote radicals, uh, are they, they themselves real. And then on the flip side, um, sort of cursing the, the stupid other people because they're not with us and because they don't, um, uh, they're not enlightened enough to, to be involved in the same struggle that we are. Yeah. It's a few things going on. First, I love in this, the, the, the phrasing, how it comes across almost like a prayer with the repetition and everything, and, and that that's just so perfect to have this sort of internal mantra that's repeated. And then with what you were saying, yeah, I mean, I think very often, unfortunately, either anarchism either attracts or produces a certain kind of narcissistic personality that maybe on some level likes feeling like they're special and different and that others are sheeple, and maybe that has something to do with the sensitivity to criticism that you were talking about before, where it's, you know, what do you mean? I, I, I'm being attacked. My analysis that puts me so above the person that I both uh, hate for their ignorance and yet love for their authenticity. You're, I, <laughs> you're trying to say I'm just another person? The, uh, I, I mean, I guess the context in which we're even addressing this question is this idea that somehow our project with this podcast, our project with these conversations is, is a flawed one because if we were just to open our eyes, we would see that, that there, that there's an incredible amount of struggle happening all around us and that, and that we are strong in that struggle. And that especially in the context of being in these, uh, in these incendiary moments that one, uh, feels power and and perhaps there is a unique type of power that is an anarchist type of power that is most commonly found in these moments of sort of pure ecstasy, but also pure explicit struggle against the existing order. And um, and that's a very nice patter. Like I, you know, as those words come out of my mouth, I feel like okay, yeah, I can get it. I I get why someone would 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 valorize those moments. Um, and you can point, to, it's very easy to point to the fact that, yes, many governments are precarious, and and it's actually a minority of governments that are very secure and stable, and then you can look at that and say, see, there's a constant uh, latent resistance in all people to forms of government, and it's just a question of giving it the right push. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not even going to go that far. I, I, I think that there are very few people who are arrogant enough to think that uh, gov- governments are about to topple or, or whatever, but I I do think that there's there's a sense that um, there's something ahistorical about the both the the desire um, to to perceive the things that are happening that happened in 2015 as being true social struggle and um, uh, and 
what we're talking about when we talk as anarchists. So for me, you know, if I were going to talk about the passionate ideas that that I associate with with anarchist ideas and and associate with the the sort of ways in which I try to live my life, and I compare and contrast them to, for instance, the Black Life Life Matters protests that have uh, happened in you know Baltimore, Ferguson, and a, a few other areas in the U.S. I I just I don't see them on the same level. I don't see them that uh, there being much of a parallel at all. Now that said, of course I was not at those locations, and and perhaps people who would do a compare and contrast between Occupy and what we're calling the Black Lives Matter protests would say that Black Lives Matter protests have been much you know much more exciting, much more uh, engaged. I just. I guess my political analysis of of the difference and of these this, this sort of compare and contrast is to say that while a riot itself might be a wonderful <clears throat> thing to to devote your energy to, on the other hand, the political resultant of the you know of the sort of mathematical equation that the that the riot is part of does not look like a, a an anarchist anarchistic world at all. Instead, it looks like um, the, the the sort of reforms that have generally placated riots for hundreds and hundreds of years in every city, basically, uh, that, that there's any historical record of. Um, you know, a, a certain amount of moment, momentum happens, a set of riots happen, and then bodies of politicians of one stripe or another transform the society in such a way to placate the, the, the rioters. Yeah, there was a particularly depressing moment for me when I was becoming acquainted acquainted with the uh, anarchist culture of the Bay Area where I was seeing this slogan that was on a sticker that said, Riots Work. Right. And I asked someone, maybe you already know the story behind this, what that meant and what it was referring to. And it was, I actually don't remember the specifics, but it was explicitly conceived of as we rioted X number of times and these reforms happened. And that was the first time I'd actually come to grips with it, with the logic being laid out that plainly. And I was saying, mm-hmm. so well, doesn't that make it implicitly reformist? And there was this sort of, well, no, because we're breaking the law to get those results. <laughs> so there seemed to be a confusion between, you know, means and ends or something like that. Well, but this is, this is the argument. And I, and I, and I, I guess I want to sort of say it in two voices because, you know, I'm sympathetic to an anarchist that says that the joy on the streets and the and and these you know crystal clear moments where you get to stand in opposition to the forces of law and order, that that these are the moments that for them make an anarchist. Totally. And I think that that's totally that's that's a fine position to take. I have no I have very little problem with it. But the next part of this is that you, who who is standing up against the forces of law and order are being used as a tool by other players. Yeah. And and for me as an anarchist, I want to be talking about, you know, social tr- transformation uh, on that level. Like what does what does a revolution make? What doesn't it make? What what are the the, the choices that we make in the in the, in the context of these conversations? And and in that conversation, why are why are, why are we so weak? Why do others find no interest in us? Becomes very clear. Because we're basically willing to be pawns, and and I think that um, and I and and I think that that's worth 
yeah, I think that that's a, the position worth having. Yeah, and just to touch on, you were saying uh, that that perspective is ahistorical, and what comes to mind for me was the um, the civil rights movement of the 1960s when you had this split, obviously, between people like MLK on the one hand and, and people in his circle, and then you had Stokely Carmichael and others who were absolutely about the riot. And it was explicitly the case that MLK and company were using Stokely Carmichael and company and going down to speak to the politicians and saying, see what happens when you don't bargain with us. Instead, you have to deal with these guys who just want to smash and burn. And every time you don't talk to us and make these reforms, the rioting is going to happen. And MLK at some point uh, later in his life, I know, specifically said, yeah, we wouldn't have been able to do what we did without Stokely Carmichael and company because you had to have the extreme wing in order to to normalize and make look nice the reformist wing. And so it's hard not to see a recapitulation of that happening, even if it's not as explicit and as direct. I mean, I, I'm very trepidatious around talking about history with mm-hmm. this capital H and sort of assigning values uh, along the lines you just did. Not because I don't think that there's a truth to that story. It's similar to, to uh, Gandhi as being talked about in the same way. Sure, sure. Um, Compared to Tucker Singh. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I'm nervous because there are tons of people who were, who are still alive, who are involved sure. in these struggles, who would basically say, "Ah, contraire, I disagree with your analysis." Mm-hmm. And and so and so for me, the I'll I'll say my position more tentatively, even though I do think that there's some strong arguments for it, which is something about, you know, what role do you choose to play in, in, in the context of these situations? And I, and I just feel like a lot of our peers are choosing to play the role of the pawn and, and to basically call it something, um, noble. And, um, uh, and I just, it just makes me uncomfortable, I guess, as is the lack of a language. But but if we're going to talk about a social revolution and and really get into the nuts and bolts of what it would take to to have a, a social revolution, and I think that this is actually, you know, again, the stronger part of let, we'll say an insurrectionary anarchist position. So an insurrectionary anarchist, anarchist position, by and large, says. This, um, uh, sorry, I'm losing my thread here. We should find the weaknesses in the, in the current existing social order, and we should take the already existing tensions and essentially attempt to inflame them. And, and in that way, uh, uh, expose the hypocrisies and perhaps the structural, uh, flaws in the existing order and so so for them and this has now been in the the case for about five years in north america they believe that the tension between police and people of color especially insofar as police do murder mm-hmm. people of color in the city that this is the hottest point that this is the, this is the point where, where tension can you know exists and can be exploited so um in that vein you know, the Black Lives Matter campaign, to a greater extent, has this existential component that's just about blackness in America, and it also has this more functional component, which is sort of stop killing us police officers. Yeah. And 
So anarchists can, on some level, see this moment is absolutely being one for them to be concerned about, and to the extent to which um, this is a very racial movement. Uh, anarchists have... Sort uneasiness. Of, yeah, but also have played it f- as, as intelligently as possible. Mm-hmm. But they can also see the Black Lives Matter as a vindication of their own work. And this is where things get tense, because we're talking about racial politics in North America versus... In a, an Italian political philosophy and how it translates to an American context. but An Italian political philosophy in a relatively homogeneous country. Sure. Compared to, yes. so, so I guess for me, to the extent to which I want to have this conversation as a revolutionary, <laughs> which I would not necessarily call myself, um, but as a critic of revolutions, which I definitely would call myself, I would basically say that even at its best, even at its purest and most successful, that this is not this this flaw that's being attempted to ex- to, to be exposed, which is something about authority, violence, and otherness, is not enough to make a revolution. In other words, the the things that it's pointing to, the exposure that it's making on the U.S., even the the, the subjects that are being defended. We'll, we'll just say black America is not of one mind about the, the role of the police in society and the way in which um, violence is being played out. And and my my strong sensibility or my, my strong sense is is that yes, there will be reforms in a variety of big cities in the U.S. Obviously, in the in the Midwest and Baltimore, there will be objective reforms that will lower the, the numbers of murders that will happen over the next few years, and that's the amount of success that will happen. Perhaps some of the military surplus that has been shed from the from the federal level and, and given to the states and to the cities, will, will, that, that flow will, will slow down. But, but to me, it's very difficult for me to imagine there being a greater political traction on, of this moment than, than that. And that basically puts the anarchists who have devoted the last five years to this particular struggle at this very difficult impasse where to the extent to which they've been convincing that they've, they're going to convince people to engage in this reformist sort of strategy. And to the extent to which they have a lot of passion about the issue, they're basically looking at very little return. I don't think black America is, is looking to, to have an uprising. Yeah. And there's, also an issue here of recognizing which way the wind was already blowing. Um, I'm trying to remember his name. There was a police consultant that uh, came to Oakland about two years ago, and it was Tom something. And I, we could maybe put the put it in the in the TikTok later. The exact name of the person, but I mean this this kind of stuff has been talked about for years, even before Black Lives Matter really took off, about how there needs to be a push toward what has been called community policing mm-hmm. in the United States, which looks like a whole set of reforms that are geared around making the police have a better relationship with the community, have a less adversarial relationship, and sort of bringing people, bringing the citizenry into the policing apparatus. And to me, it very much parallels the way that Democracy was an effort to bring the citizenry into being its own politicians. This is a way of bringing the citizenry into being their own police, where 
It looks like having a closer relationship with police. It might be civilian review boards for police officers to make uh, the citizenry feel as if they're sort of in charge of the police. Um, it uh, looks like less patrolling and more sort of calling systems between the citizenry and the police. And um, now it's even being talked about, uh, Bernie Sanders talks about it, like anytime police comes up, policing comes up in uh, the debates and such. And um, there's one more element. And uh, I don't, I'm not sure what it was. But it seems to me, oh, okay, yeah. And then that the fact that uh, the United States is now being widely criticized by other countries for the military militaristic <laughs> aspects of its policing and the way the whole Ferguson thing was handled being handled. So at this point, it, it really is in the interest of the federal government. It's in the interest of candidates to be for this kind of stuff already. And the Black Lives Matter thing only gives them more sort of political capital to look like the good guys to do it. And when you can see, I think, a couple of years before you even try to insert yourself into the social struggle, that that's sort of the way the system is ready to lurch that to me doesn't look like the kind of hot rupture point that the insurrectionary anarchist is looking for. Yeah, I mean, I mean, again, I feel like five years ago there was a lot of intelligence around this topic and and sort of reconciling. How do you do real, uh, real <laughs> politics on the ground um, uh, versus how do you sort of stay in sync with a with an anarchist uh, perspective and. And the purists are basically going to say, you know, the, 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 the way to do it is to sort of stay in the, in the rupture point. In other words, to, to, to valorize the riot or, or to only participate insofar as there is riotous possibility. Um, and you've seen the more sophisticated political creatures within the anarchist space extend that to, you know, going to, to, to town councils and to sort of paying attention to to the way in which the the government is is being responsive to these issues, and and so right there, you know, that split and that division lives much more in the space of people who concern themselves with quote unquote struggle as being the the primary form of anarchist activity. And w what I'm saying is that, like the. The other position, or, the, or or let's say a, a differently strategic position, is is to evaluate this entire set of um, focuses for uh, for what their possibility is, and that's the debate I would I would like to have. That said, that isn't because I believe that there is some other topic that's just waiting for anarchists to to address, because um, because revolution is imminent. I don't believe that revolution is imminent, and the and the reason that I can say that is because I basically look at the types of unrest and the types of things that people criticize in North America, and they still look like middle class concerns, by and large, and middle class concerns, i.e., economic concerns, used to be the place where all this sort of conversation and activity happened, but for me, you know, I I, I actually thought it was a much more interesting conversation around the time of the financial crisis in two thousand eight to talk about what the possibilities of, of activity were in that context. If, if anarchists, um, if many anarchists are hidden, uh, workerists, it seems to me like that the economic situation would have been, would have had a lot more traction. 
There is also an argument, you know, that, that really is the red versus green argument, which is to say that climate change is the topic of, of the rest of our lives. You know, the, the next 40 to 100 years are, are going to involve changes to, to the land that we live on. And, um, and to me, that is a place for activity and for thinking long term and for really working with other people. The status absolutely have a corner on that market currently. And that's because they just make it about resources. But I believe it's as much about relationships as it is about resources. So to me, those are two examples that seem a bit broader in scope than just talking about police violence. Um, You know, the advantage that police violence has as a topic of conversation is is it sort of brings forward the, the conversation about what's the role of the state. And I think it's worth saying that the reason why the military and the police have uh, headed towards a sort of fusion and towards a, uh, a towards a, a more militaristic face is because as our population gets larger and larger, it becomes more and more expensive to to put troops out in the field, and and by and large, the state would like to to manage the unruly masses as efficiently and cheaply as possible, and so of course that's going to look more militaristic than it looks like community policing, mm-hmm. and. Um, it's going to look more like drones, is what it looks like now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I, I watch a variety of the television programs that are sort of about uh, <laughs> uh, foreign interventions in other countries and how drone-centric things are becoming, and it is absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Because it's basically about how do you manage people by video screen, mm-hmm. and it's not like it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Well, not only is it not like it doesn't work, but... Uh it's a much more popular choice for politicians to say to their own people, oh, we're not going to send your children over. You know, we're just going to send robots over and kill those others who aren't really moral persons because you know, they're not like us. Even though um, yeah, you keep kind of seeing in the more liberal press this sort of typical whining about how it's uh, you know violating all these international laws i don't think most of middle america cares about that at all i no, don't think most absolutely. of middle america thinks we should be subject to international laws yeah so it's a very popular choice uh there are few, i feel like there are a few different directions we could take this sure so one thing that was interesting to me in thinking about this last night was um was how I feel like there's not much of an understanding among anarchists, at least in anything that I've heard or read, of what actually makes someone become an anarchist. Why mm. are some people... You know, I, I don't think when any anarchist tells their story, it's uh, it's about, uh, well, I heard the arguments and I considered the evidence for and against, and ultimately I was persuaded to the anarchist position. And that's not usually how it goes. It's usually some kind of story about growing up, Right, and I would say often it's stories about uh, this happened in my family, or this happened to me with respect to school, or something like that, and I felt some sort of intuitive break with the system, and then later I came to the arguments, or I I met someone who was an anarchist, or I read something that was anarchist the first time, and then I realized that's where I was at, and so it's not so much about the the argument reaching the person as it is the person being ready for the argument when it comes to them and it made me wonder what what is the psychology behind this and is it something that's ever really been investigated 
And this came to me in the context of seeing it's very hip right now in psychology to, um, or at least it's, it's received in a hip way by the press, that these investigations into psychology between the liberal mindset and the conservative mindset. Mm. And there's supposedly is more and more evidence mounting that those two types might actually be what we might call natural kinds, that they might actually represent uh, people being different at the constitutive level, mm. and that the conservative is more um, attentive to threats, uh, has a, a deeper sort of in-group, out-group mindset. Um, the liberal is more neurotic, and that it, you know, it might be that there's something happening at the sort of fundamental psychological level, and it made me wonder, you know, with social sciences, so often the framing of the question determines so heavily the results, and so if you go into it with this idea, maybe there are two types of people, or, you know, I recognize two types of people from their political positions, then, then you'll find that that's reflected at some kind of physiological level. And so it makes me wonder, you know, when we think, why are we so weak? Often it's, um, why, why does no one care about our arguments? Uh, why, when we move through the world, is, is it, like I was saying, sometimes embarrassing to talk about our ideas? Or we feel like uh, if we start talking about our ideas, we're going to instantly become social outliers? Or when we, we talk about often, the, and I, I would like to talk about media um, further down in the episode, when we talk about media, why do we find ourselves uh, easily falling prey to the sort of sectarian echo chamber result of, of just talking to the same people over and over? Maybe it's that there is some kind of fundamental psychological block and that anarchists are going to be a minority and then that would totally change our orientation in the world. Yeah, I mean, I think especially how anarchists uh, articulate their position today, we are absolutely we embed minor, minoritarianism and minority type positions and the people who don't embed those positions or who think that they don't are just embedding a different type of a minority so in, in general uh, a lot of anarchists are concerned with social justice issues mm -hmm. and they sort of associate themselves with the far left of the democratic party and and sort of that whole cadre is progressive just progressive sphere, yeah. Progressives, right? Or Trotskyists, as they're <laughs> otherwise known. And um, and and this this really isn't a, a necessarily. Perhaps it's a larger in numbers position, but it's not a larger in 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 terms of the psychological category sort of an issue. It's just a different uh, issue. But but this is, I mean, the, I guess one of the things I love about anarchists is that you know a lot of anarchists really reject the, the the sort of mass society arguments that we're kind of falling yeah. into right now. Yeah. They basically say, fuck all of that. Fuck organizing society. You know, I'm my position is just leave me the fuck alone and 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 I'm just gonna do my own thing. And that's not so different at all from what we would call the conservative mind frame. Uh the far right. Right. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. I mean the existentialist guy that we were talking about yeah, in the last episode, that was his line. Right, he said it over and over again. But I, I, I hear a lot of people you associate with the right. It's not just the far right. Mm -hmm. I mean, in general, a conservative position is I don't want the government in my business. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, we know that that's a bumper sticker. Right. And, and, and what lives behind that bumper sticker is really different. But it's yeah. also a bumper sticker from anarchists, right? In general, and many anarchists would say that position and also rely on food stamps right. and... 
and and sort of live in such a way that doesn't necessarily reflect the mm-hmm. the, the front of that bumper sticker. Yeah, and definitely the dumpster diver still needs the dumpster to be there. <laughs> well, and also the person who's calling people manarchists uh-huh. is is devoting an awful lot of their their energy to other people. We got to fulfill the drama quotient. The drama quotient means society needs to be around. Right. Yeah. For sure. And and I I I mean I'm absolutely not like as much as I might empathize with that position. I'm not ready to live that way today. And th- this is actually one of the things that f- I do find a very uh, frustrating in anarchist polemics is is that anarchists do by and large agree about quote unquote hypocrisy as being sort of like. The, the, the prime crime that people can commit. In other words, you know, if you're a green anarchist and you use a computer, haha, I found your hypocrisy. And, you know, whereas I, as a red anarchist, you know, doing capitalism every day, <laughs> that doesn't exactly count. Yeah. This is an ancient rhetorical fallacy called tu quoque. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, let's talk about media. Yeah, so I've been sort of orbiting around the topic of how do we talk to other people? Can anarchism be popular? Is it is it some kind of a basic psychological problem? And you know, one of the roles from, or excuse me, one of the um, criticisms that comes up from media, and uh, because I perhaps to the detriment of my health overly inhabit the anarchist news world, and when you see new projects come out, one of the the sort of anonymous. Uh, tagline criticisms is uh, why why more media more media is useless we're we're just talking to the milieu we need action not media or if media is not tied directly to a goal you know if it's not agitprop where it's the the whole object is to get someone to do something and there's sort of measurable uh or there's a metric of success there then it's useless and i i guess i wanted to maybe address those concerns in a way, but also just talk about how we have construed our media efforts. And so I'll talk about when I first started doing Free Radical Radio, um, I was still very much new to being around anarchists, and I had just uh, decided that most of the people that I knew, even though I liked the people, I thought that their projects were not aligned with my values and I was trying to find something to do with these ideas and it was also a way for me to come to grips with a lot of new ideas and so a lot of it especially at the beginning was talking about current events internationally and then also specific things that were happening in Oakland that Ryder and I were able to actually go to and be present for and a lot of it was well what does the anti-civ perspective look like and so that was very much for me a, a project of finding what the goals were as I was doing it rather than prefiguring them. And I guess I viewed the audience as being varied radicals who weren't necessarily anti-civ people. And it was a way of trying to make the anti-civ case of uh, 
you know, this is not enough or this is not what anarchism should look like to what initially was just sort of an imagined audience of people who might be sensitive to those ideas but not um, hold those positions. And so it, a lot of uh, the show, especially as it went on, shifted from current events to broader topics and themes. And so it was stuff like here's why agriculture is a problem and how it leads to war and how it leads to hierarchy and uh, this is why we shouldn't frame our criticisms in terms of morality and and then as the show went on it turned out the imagined audience at least in in some part was real because there we would get the the emails from people saying yeah i've been uh, you know a, a syndicalist and some of the things that you're saying make sense or you know, I've had these ideas too, but I thought they were too crazy. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's nice to hear them. And so as far as, you know, construing the role of media, I guess for that show, what I was tr eventually was trying to do was sort of push the anarchist critique away from the left and toward these deeper topics and try to make this impossible seeming position look more real. And it, it, perhaps could fall prey to the critique of, of talking almost entirely to anarchists um, and it could be said to not be connected to a goal but I think at least in some way it, it was successful by my metric yeah I mean I, I guess I um, <clears throat> there's such an inundation of information in the world nowadays you know anybody who pays half attention to a half dozen websites every day I think can either live in a in an echo chamber and right. or um uh but but I just feel like there's certain topical types of approaches that uh I find it hard to argue for like so for instance I don't exactly like this is perhaps more true in the in print media but I was always sort of against being super topical in, in our print media and, and topical like talking about current events yeah talking oh, about current sure. events um, and and mostly because I just felt like that information could be found elsewhere yeah and and it, so it really dated especially a print publication and let's say in the context of like anarchist news the idea that anarchist news um, had a flow that uh, that was one part topical and one part more analytical to me felt and perhaps one part gossip to me, to me, that felt like a really good sort of combination. And, um, and so a lot of the criticisms of anarchist news are just about the comments. And I just feel like that's a very small percentage of the actual readers. I think that the, that the readers really liked the, the, the mix. Um, and when I, when I look at other anarchist news sites, they tend to, to emphasize either really topical things or um, maybe analytical things. But actually, I, it, I, I feel like when I look at Infoshop.org, it just seems to focus on the good news. Mm. Like it almost like they almost never repost things that are sort of brutal or nasty. And um, and I feel like, you know, that's very needed. I, I just feel like like that's a lie to mm. not uh, put the blinders on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I guess the other sort of big um, news sites would be Anarchismo, which is almost entirely report backs and, and analytical sort of stuff. And Libcom, which definitely is not an anarchist site as its primary goal, but, you know, it's it's obviously in the family. Yeah. And um, and they're, 
their interest in news is super kind of like scattered. Like it's clear that they have like an, an editorial group of maybe a half dozen people and a lot of the content's original. So all that's really great, but it's, um, but it's all over the map. Like sometimes it's about a labor thing happening in Africa. The next day it'll be about, you know, something super mundane from the UK. Um, anyways, so, so when I think about, uh, this sort of role of media, I guess there is this question as to, is our goal to convince non-anarchists right. of our position, or is our goal to reflect, and of course I almost never use this word, but to reflect our movement. Mm-hmm. And so I always yeah, felt like Anarchist News's goal was to reflect the movement, and this new media project that we're starting to talk about, to some extent, its goal is to talk to non-anarchists. Right. I mean, there's absolutely uh, a position held by many, and I think there's an argument for it that the the media the metric of success for a media project is does it make more people think uh anarchist ideas when before they really weren't right yeah and so are you, you're alluding to lbc no oh you're alluding to the brilliant this oh this new <laughs> i'm being foolish yeah i mean the, yeah 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 yeah, I mean, yeah. basically yeah. like <laughs> You know, for, for for me, doing projects is is a, a matter of experimentation. I don't think that any of the projects that I've worked on over the past fifteen years are the answer to uh, all problems. I think that each of them answers a different type of problem, and I've had different amounts of success with each of each project. So when I think of Anarchy Magazine, uh, you know, Anarchy Magazine was a lot about an argument about what should anarchism look like and that's still what what its project is i mean i call it a a critical project within the anarchist space and so the debates around with with nefac or or about primitivism or all these sorts of things like these are really useful and and necessary conversations but that's an extremely insider project definitely only talking to anarchists i mean you can't expect someone to pick up a joda and just start paging through it and know what's being talked about Whereas, let's say with with something a project like Anarchist News, I think that it could appeal to a non-anarchist. And the question is, is the content of what anarchists are talking about charismatic enough to want someone to learn all the things that they would have to learn to really understand what's happening, especially in the comment section? But if you just look at the news feed, I can absolutely see a wide array of people who would be interested in the news feed who are not necessarily anarchists. Yeah, I mean, I think the difficulty is that um, a news, if it has a sort of introductory, something that looks like an introductory essay or topic, it's by chance. Mm-hmm. It, on any given day, you might look at it and just say, I don't know what people are talking about. Yeah. But the but the goal of a news feed, especially a news feed that's you know radical po- politics or whatever, is to keep flowing. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I mean, I don't want to necessarily do a compare and contrast with it's going down, but but perhaps maybe a better example uh, would be indie media. <clears throat> the thing about indie media, uh, if you were to look at the national news feed rather than just a local. Um, so there's like indiemedia.us or something mm-hmm. that, or, or actually, I think think the indiemedia.org root website. Um, you know, it would basically be the best of each particular town, but it, but the flow of information, 
I think actually what happened with um, indie media that's really interesting is that the national feed, I think, stopped, became neglected. And all the journalistic energy was just on the locals. But there was a time when the national feed was the best of what was happening around the U.S. And you can absolutely understand how someone who's not necessarily involved in radical politics would find that to be totally compelling. Yeah. It's like, what stuff is happening? And then the second question would be, what's happening in my town? Anyways, I think that there's a, a a wide array of strategies that that can sort of happen in that in this space, and I mean, I guess what we're asserting as a core principle is that anarchism is worth something, and it's worth being um, the lens by which we look at the rest of the world, and this is the place where we're disagreeing. So for me, my answer to the question is, uh, if the question is why are we so weak, I I actually the answer to me is because we're embarrassed with it by ourselves and you're saying it, you disagree with me because you perceive my position as oh no I, I, it's not about disagreement oh I thought you said this is where we disagree no no I'm not sure that I, maybe I said that and I didn't realize it but but for me the, if, the, if the question that we're asking uh-huh. ourselves and each other is why are we so weak sure it's basically the we part uh huh yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think t- to me, a uh, first sort of hazard at the question would be we need to be talking more and we need to be louder and we need to be clarifying who we are more and be less willing to dilute what we feel and what we believe in it in a sort of desperate effort to be popular. Well, I mean, so I'm going to draw a historical parallel. And again, I'm using the word movement, which I almost never would use the word, but but in the context of this conversation, I feel like it's necessary. If there is such a thing as an anarchist movement, then there should be rules or there, there should be some understandings as to how we negotiate with each other. And I first started talking, thinking about this um, when we were part of Anarchy Magazine, because... At some point, NEFAC, or the anarcho-platformists, stopped responding to criticisms that were being made of them. <laughs> and I th- I think that realistically there were a couple of reasons for this, not the least of which is that their numbers were really fading. They weren't getting new blood, and the old blood just sort of had, they said their piece and they were done like they'd, they'd finished. But what that meant was that we were critiquing people who weren't sort of responding back. And that's deadly. That's really deadly. And so um, uh, so that's when I started to think about this idea that, that we, Ajoda, saw ourselves as maybe the gatekeepers or, or guardians of anarchism, which I, whatever, I, I have criticisms of that, but that a lot of other anarchist positions didn't see that as being the case, um, meaning they didn't see that we were part of the same team mm-hmm. on any level. And a lot of this has to do with like some of the more outrageous things that were said under the umbrella of post-left. So, you know, I'm not part of anarchism. If Bob Black is part of anarchism, would definitely be a common position. And um, Or Peter Lambert Wilson. Yeah, right. And, um, and so perhaps one of the things I'm sort of reaching at is that if there's an anarchist movement and an anarchist press, or if there is a movement and the, and the press is a sort of 
reflection of that, then we should have some sort of terms and uh, some understandings as to how we deal with each other. And this is one of the differences that people talk about when they talk about how great Greece is compared to the U.S., is that they do have some understandings. So some of them include prisoners cannot be spoken ill of, that basically people on the outside cannot criticize prisoners. Yeah, that's interesting. Yep. And actually, yeah, yeah. And, um, uh, yeah, I mean, most of them sort of look like that. So it's sort of an etiquette. In etiquette, yeah. yeah, like bad jacketing. You can't do bad jacketing, and um, uh, and perhaps I think maybe a more, more modern one is uh, you can't you can't ask questions around race topics. Some like so as an example, um, and I couldn't exactly understand the conversation, but but there's this person called F- Biceps Critic. Yeah, <laughs> and and they they were sort of asking questions around the Holocaust. Yeah, and um, post biceps, post biceps. Yeah, sure. Um, and and a lot of the response was basically by even turning the conversation in that direction towards that particular topic, that allowing that to those posts to stay up was anarchist news being soft on racism and, and on Holocaust revisionism. And um, and while, you know, there's a part of me that still f- sort of sympathizes with a free, free speechy speech, yeah. type of yeah. attitude that says, like, wait, these questions can't be asked, yeah. the other part of me realizes that basically there's a whole host, like, you couldn't talk about biological differences between white people and black people yeah. and, and not be called a racist. You can't basically allow any Holocaust revisionary conversations and, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, it, but in Greece, there's it's you, when you say not not allowed to ask questions about race. It's just sort of like in that in that sort of racial realist uh, eugenicist colored direction, or just well, I'm I'm saying that these would be rules that would be more true in North oh, America. North America, I see, I see, I see. But yeah. but in Greece, I experienced. That I mean, you know, this isn't necessarily written down, yeah. but but that 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 there's a whole host of topics that are generally agreed upon as being like the social convention is that if you do this, you're yeah, yeah. you're fucked up. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. Well, anything else you want to talk about? Uh, I guess. Did you want to answer the question? Why are we so weak? I did. Which is? I did. I was, I was, um, I was sort of grappling with it and just hazarding, but I was saying it, to me it has a lot to do with that being willing to capitulate in an effort to be popular. To, I, I'm not someone who usually talks about principles. The idea of, um, of, of sort of codifying things it is something I'm very averse to, and I know a lot of people make arguments from first principles and that sort of thing, which is not something that I'm willing to do or at least willing to frame it that way. But to me, this sort of um, urge to latch on to what is topical and to latch on to social struggles in an effort to bring people into the fold is something that speaks of weakness. The um, being afraid to have the conversations that look like socially non-normative conversations in those sorts of little everyday surrenderings we do is part of the reason that we're weak. And, yeah, I think... uh, (sighs) on a more sort of infrastructural level, the fact that um, 
a lot of us, myself included, like to talk about living without civilization, but we are almost all of us absolutely dependent on it for just basic everyday survival. That's a big part of the reason that we're weak. And okay, so I think that 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 makes an episode. <laughs> I mean, this is a great question, and yeah. and I think that this is a more nuanced question and a, and a nuanced way to talk about it than some of the things we've done up till now. Even though in general we're talking about the same things, yeah. um, and I think that this, yeah, I, mm-hmm. I I hope that the a conversation develops out of this that perhaps allows some of the hostility that I'm feeling uh, from other projects that I have no avarice towards at all. Um, that that perhaps this opens up that conversation a little bit more, but probably won't. <laughs> Have a great week. <laughs>